Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. History, they say, repeats itself. First as tragedy, second as farce. And today we're looking at the farcical angle of things, both the history of comedy and the way in which history itself has been made the subject of comedy. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History with me, Tom Holland, and my straight man, <laughs> the Ernie Wise to my Eric Morecambe, Dominic Sambrook. Dominic, how are you? Um, I'm very well, thank you, Tom. I, re- I prefer to think of myself as... The, well, I mean, what are we? We're basically um, Laurel and Hardy, aren't we? Somebody said that on Twitter, that we would be <laughs> perfect for playing Laurel and Hardy. So I'll take that. I, Ernie Although, Wise, I'm not so sure. Silent comedy on podcasts, I don't know, maybe, maybe not so good. <laughs> and you know, what we, what, Dominic, what we really need is the help of a man who has made a living out of making people laugh, yeah. often with a keen eye on history I'm in here. his material. Can I'm you here. think of anyone? I'm here. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> apart from yourself, apart from yourself, it's the obvious man, Al Murray, known also as his alter ego, the pub landlord, and increasingly these days as one half of the podcasting double act fronting We Have Ways of Making You Talk About the Second World War with some other bloke whose name slips me. <laughs> Al, welcome to, uh, welcome to a podcast. It must be an unusual experience for you being on a podcast. Well, it's very, it's very peculiar being, I mean, as it were, on the receiving end, <laughs> um, uh, being the butt of the joke um, on this occasion, I suppose. Um, thanks for having me. It's, um, I've, I've heard several of your, um, uh, the one about the uh, outbreak of the origins of the First World War, though. God, I had, I had things to, I had things to yell at my uh, iPhone listening to no, that. No, 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 that was all good stuff. Oh yeah, that was absolutely. All very good stuff. Oh, I mean, I, as Marxist interpretations go, <laughs> Dominic. I, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> So where should we start, Tom? I think we. Should, I tell you what. Let's start with um, the the funny. The first funny book I ever read about history, Al, was Ten Sixty Six and all that. And that's actually for a lot yep. of people. That's the sort of the 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 er text of yeah. sort of funny history or history as funny. Do, is it still funny? Do you think? Um. Well, uh, uh, yes, I think it pro- it probably is. I mean, after that that. Uh, I, I'm exactly the same. That was the first funny history book that was sort of given to me. I had R.J. Hunst, Unstead's Looking at History, which was a sort of a picture picture book with, you know, with Mott and Bailey castles in it and Ro- Roman underfloor heating and all the sort of kind of the imaginative framework that um, that I still have about um, uh, uh, the Middle Ages and before. Although we, we don't call it that anymore, do we? Anyway, um, uh, and... And I had that, and I had 1066 and all that. And an awful lot of the uh, uh, stuff I read in 1066 and all that, I probably encountered before I then studied it properly. So my understanding of the Civil War pretty much comes from uh, Sellers and Yeatman yeah. rather, than, rather than, you know, b- brilliant people like uh, Blair Worden. I mean, I, I, I very much 
or Christopher Hill or whoever. I very much am. The Roundheads were, the, were, were, were terrible people with the right idea and the Cavaliers were nice people with the wrong idea, you know. And the, the, that good king, bad king, good thing, bad thing uh, breakdown of history was, was then how I was taught it, which is, after all, why the book's so bloody funny. Yeah. Is it's, uh, there was a fag paper between it and O-level history, the way it was taught. And I remember when I got to do my degree being set a... Tutorial question one week of was King John a bad king? And you think, <laughs> yeah, what well, the he hell was, is going he? on? Yeah. Well, he was. Well, he was. I mean, that's... well, of course, well, of course he was. But Richard the Lionheart was a worse <laughs> king. But but um, but you know that that the, the reason that book's funny. I mean, it's 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 Homer Simpson. It's funny because it's true. You know that 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 book absolutely strikes hard at the way history certainly was taught. And I don't think it's taught like that anymore. You know, there's primary sources now and all that sort of stuff that my daughters have bothered themselves with. Um, but we, growing up with that book and that and that parodied outlook, and seeing that you know that that after all, for historians, history is a playpen that they um, uh, uh, they lob toys at each other in. Why can't it be for everyone else? And and least of all humorists. Yeah, I I remember the um, the wave of egg kings. That's that's how the, the dark ages were summed up. Yeah, and. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> no matter how I try and purge that from my mind, I do find it very difficult not to think. It's of, like um, and William of Orange, Anglo-Saxon history. William of Orange is drawn as, yes, an, orange, as an orange, isn't he? And yeah, I can yeah, never get that yeah, out of my yeah. head when thinking about William. Yeah, of orange. some of it's very, very direct. <laughs> um, uh, but why but not? Also, I mean, the, um, the, the the whole good thing and bad thing. I mean, basically, that's what the British Empire seems to be at the moment. <laughs> it's people on Twitter debating was the British Empire a good thing or a bad yeah. thing, and yeah. it doesn't really seem to have changed although um you it's you mentioned the first world war right at the beginning listening mm. to, to to dominic with his nonsense marxist spiel <laughs> yeah yeah and Crazy. um <laughs> I, I, am i right it's quite a while since i read 1066 and all that but doesn't it finish just before yeah the first Britain's, world war because yes, it, america becomes top nation and then history comes to a full stop yes and it does i mean so it's it's fukuyama i mean but for but for the 1910s isn't it history has ended um, uh, I mean, it, yes, but I think there is a sequel. I don't remember because the yeah, there uh, is, isn't there, Al? And and who who wrote that? Uh, well, well, there's a couple, there's a new sequel. There's uh, <laughs> there's one there's one that yes. Go on, the, promote the, uh, yourself. Promote. Go well, on. all right. I mean, I you know, shameless book plugging on this podcast would really really be out of line. <laughs> um, uh, it's unheard um, of. Uh, 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 yes, I wrote a book last year during during lockdown, which in itself was an extremely. I found very, very challenging as a, as, a, as a comic writer because, after all, when you write a... The difference between writing a stand-up show and writing a book is with a stand-up show, you, you'll, I'll sit here in my office and write some, or in a car, usually on my way somewhere, and then I'll go on stage and I'll try it. And, the, and you, when you write a live stand-up show, you co-write it with the audience anyway. They're the co-writer. They're the, they're the you know, they're, they're the Crofty or Perry or whatever. They're the other person going, no, that doesn't work. Yes, that works. Extend that idea and build on it. Which you can't do that with a book. And also the other thing with the stand-up show is you sign off on it. You never sign off on it. So if I take a touring show out, I'll do 200 nights. And it, it's always different every night because you're always permanently tweaking and always fixing and always able to streamline it. Whereas when you write a book, you hand it over and that's it. And you can't do anything about it apart from the, you know, um, grammar being wrong or is that joke the right way around that you get back sometimes from an editor. So, so I, yes, I... I what's it called the last hundred years give and take and all that which i was commissioned to write and my vanity demanded that i write in all that book um uh i don't know how good an idea it was but getting to getting 
to grips with the 20th century and trying to make it funny yeah felt like it's... something well no actually felt like entirely entirely um possible actually um, really and, but because yeah but, but because i guess the reason that 1066 and all that finishes with the first world war is is that you couldn't have made that too funny. close because yeah. when it, it was written in 1930s i think so it would have been yeah. too close in a way yeah um well, I do. I do wind the book down in sort of 1999 because I, 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 when I went when I went to university to study history in 1987, the curriculum began in 1964 or, or ended depending on you know history began or ended depending on your point of view. You know, further back is history. So the the watershed moment was 1964. So which at the time when I was 19 felt like an eternity, the, the 23 years or whatever it was. But now actually, 23 years ago is. You know, it's, it's only the it's only the late nineties when my eldest daughter was born. It feels like it feels like the paint hasn't dried on it yet. So I did shy away quite considerably from writing about the last twenty years because it's all too close. Yeah. And also, you know, as a as a as a responsible historian, it's impossible to draw conclusions about the events of the twenty tens yet, isn't it, gentlemen? But I mean, we've we had need this... to leave that to our antecedents. You know, in the in the in the next century, it's their job to uh, be. Well, we've had exactly this conversation on this podcast about when history, yeah. when you start writing history. And my my take on it was it's about twenty thirty years before you yeah, get some absolutely. sense of the dust settling and yeah well I mean you but, know you you can't Trump for instance he might be he might be the easy bit you know he might be the he might be John the Baptist yes, exactly. in, the, in the in the historical process and so to sort of try and contain him in a way uh, historically I think would be would would be folly. You know, but with but with Sellers and Yeatman not not writing yeah. about the First World War, I'm guessing it's not just because it's so close, but because it was so traumatic. Yeah, I imagine and, so. Yeah. And so, so I mean, you know, your podcast we have ways of making you talk. Yes, it, it, there's a hint. You know, it's a joke. It's 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 yep. a pun. Yep. And um, the theme of of comedy and the Second World War. I mean, actually, when you look at it, mm. a surprising amount has been done. So there's yep. Spike Milligan who fought in it. Right, yep. series of kind of brilliant yep. books about it. Yep. Then you have Dad's Army, and then Allo Allo, and there is a quite you know considering the the trauma, the suffering, the violence, the horrors of the Second World War, there is quite a surprising amount of comedy about it, isn't there? Well, I think there's a surprisingly small amount about it. If you, it's, oh, it's right, the other yeah. way round, as the uh, you know, it's the, uh, as the as the sort of historical elephant in the room, the Second World War is the. It's the all roads lead to it forwards and back, I think. Um, and I mean, it's in, interesting. I mean, Hello, Hello is a, is a case of point because that, after all, is, is about a piece of television. It's a parody of Secret Army rather than yeah. of the Second World War. And then if, but which which, after all, was trading on its own uh, 70s Second World War tropes and ideas. And then Hello, Hello is lampooning that and then digging into them even further, which I think which I think's. Uh, quite, a, you know, is that is that postmodern? I don't know if we, I don't know if we're allowed to, don't know if we, we would have been allowed to call it that in the eighties when it was on. But but I, I mean, you know, Milligan's war memoirs are written uh, when he when he starts getting old and he starts reminiscing and he starts trying to con- digest and deal with his experiences because after all, they end with the, 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 his war. I mean, his war culminates, as it were. His war experience culminates with a with a, he has a nervous breakdown, battle fatigue. Um, is taken out of the line and and then the last three books of his memoirs are him piecing himself together to go home um and so clearly he was trying to deal with that but the but the goon show which which is the thing where he bust open and re you know he's the most important comic voice um uh in british comedy post-war i think without 
without any doubt. He, he, he breaks everything wide open. He changes everything. He's using stuff from America that other people haven't quite got their heads around yet, like the Marx Brothers. And he comes to the 50s. And The Goon Show is this extraordinary surrealist satire about the war, about class, about um, posh chaps skimming off honest folk. Um, you know, grip, the fact that Grip Pipe Thin, who's, the, who, who's this incredible smoothie who talks like that, played by Sellers, is always trying to do over the, essentially the blue-collar characters in it. Or Colonel Bloodnock, who's an incompetent, uh, a posh military officer. It's about the war. The goon show is about the war. But he's hiding in plain sight because he's presenting it as a sort of surrealist, bonkers set of adventures. And I think that, that's the interesting thing about Milligan, is, is that... Is that Way before he writes a book about the war, way before he, he tackles it, he's dealing with it. He's um, Al, couldn't, processing. Couldn't you say that a lot of this stuff, though, is, is more deeply rooted? So it goes back to things like the Wipers times and the humour in the trenches in the First World War, where people also made jokes about the generals and the officers. And Yeah, I mean, I don't, but I don't know what Milligan knew about that. But yes, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, any any war is going to generate humour. Any, any, you know, and, and then we, of course, we then get into arguments... Uh, about how appropriate any uh, laughing about anything in particular is, and and which are questions of taste after all, and r- rather than anything else. But the wipe, yes, the wipers time is is a fantastic example, and also of you know technology being available to people to express their humour, and that's why we know about the wipers times because they wrote it down. And so often, humour is a liminal thing that exists uh, in in the ether and disappears and is momentary, and and so it's very hard to pin down actually what making people laugh when. But Al, let's, dig, you know, the wipers- and let's dig into that question for a second yeah. about taste and what's appropriate. Yes. So, because, I mean, these are questions that... <laughs> we'll get cancelled. We need to be careful. But these are questions not canceled. just for, for <laughs> comics. They're questions for historians or writers or anybody engaging with the human yeah. experience in any way. So let's take yeah. the, the super controversial subject of the, of the moment, slavery. Could yeah. you imagine um, doing something funny uh, or a comedy set i mean it seems so horrific that you kind of recoil instinctively from the idea but could it be done well i yes, don't it know has been done well, it, it has been it, done I, yeah well what, in, go on go on so, Tom. well it's it's been done in in up pompeii which i know yeah. is is you know set up 2000 years ago but frankie howard is a slave and the thing about that is that it's it's very culturally literate because that's the form that roman comedies took there were kind of, you know, the, the sassy slave who provides the commentary on the masters. And when when did that run? 70s, I think? 70s, yeah. Um, yeah. And it was regarded, I guess, as completely unproblematic. But that's because uh, it's a different kind of slavery. Would it, would it, though, would it? it be I mean, now? Yeah, but would it? Would Yeah, but people are much more sensitive now about slavery, I think, than they were. And I wonder whether having your kind of lead comic actor as a slave, would would that be... As unproblematic as it was in the seventies, oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, now you'd probably have a better sense of that than. Well, I mean, I wouldn't take it to BBC One right now. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> maybe, maybe Channel Five. Um, the, 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 the thing is, well, the thing is, is that these are, the, the, you know, I mean, I think what's very interesting is, is these are questions of taste, after all, and tastes change, and and uh, I mean the. There, there's this forever argument. I mean, it's interesting that you, you're framing like this because because 10 years ago, there was an argument that comedy is about pushing boundaries. You know, you've got to be edgy. You've got to break boundaries. And, you know, and and, and those arguments were wheeled out in defence 
um, uh, of of uh, people during the during the Russell Brand Jonathan Ross Saxgate debacle. That that argument yeah. was wheeled out by quite serious people. Comedy's job is to push the boundaries, but well. Every now and again, someone will go, not those boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but not those boundaries, thank you very much. Um, we'd rather not. And, you know, Milligan, of course, Milligan spent spent 10 years inserting rude names into the goon show and having the, having them removed if the if the censor at the BBC spotted them. And, you know, ca- characters called Hugh, Hugh Hampton, Huge Hampton, Hampton Wick. It's a bloke with a big dick. You know, he, he spent a great deal of time doing that because those were the boundaries and, and those were the boundaries he was kicking up against at the time, you know, and uh, uh, I think so much of this, the, 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 there's a tangle between what are basically que- they're questions of taste, and and but they get elevated to questions of principle, and and, and very often that can be that that's that could be quite a tricky uh, set of waters to navigate. Though what I will say is, as a as a practicing comedian, these things aren't half as don't or don't strike me as half as urgent or worrying as they do. If I read an, an article about them, you know, that uh, no. the, the, there's, there's people just getting on with it. And then there's the stuff being written about it, which, after all, is the liminal world I'm talking. Here's about. a question for you, Al, about you, you mm. talk about taste changing and the boundaries changing. Now, that would seem yeah. to imply that what we think is funny changes, does it? Well, of course it does. Um, uh, for instance, uh, there's a fool uh, from uh, called Roland Lepetur, who was on the payroll of Henry II. Right. And he received 30 acres from the king near Ipswich in Suffolk for his farting act. <laughs> That's he, funny. <laughs> he would leap, whistle and fart. Um, he was uh, he was to make an annual, instead of being given uh, his spurs, he, so he was, he was enrolled into the sergeantry, the king's sergeantry service. And instead of being given um, some a pound of pepper or a pair of spurs, he his duty was to do Every day, every Christmas day at court, a leap, a whistle and a fart act. Only at Christmas Day? Sultan, what did he do the rest of the Sultan, year? Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know. Well, he, I mean, he had his, eight, had his I suppose. Up, <laughs> eight beans. Got his bowels <laughs> ready. <laughs> Sultum, <laughs> siffletum et petum. And, and so tastes tastes change. No, but they have, no, because that's uh, something that a lot of people would find. Well, I mean, maybe, we're maybe that's now. the... Maybe that's the universal thing. But, you know, I mean, you only have to, you only have to look at a Shakespeare comedy to, to, to wonder... Yeah. Wonder, what, on earth, what on earth is funny about this? Or a lot of Greek comedies, you know, which are, which after all, are, are comedy in the literal sense where there's a mistaken identity and and uh, with hilarious consequences. Um, uh, uh, and and but, I think, t- of course, of course, tastes, of course, tastes change. It'd be silly, silly to expect them not to. But Al, on the um, the, the the jester, <laughs> yes, and indeed the um, the 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 privates in in um, at Ypres. Yeah, joking about their officers and the the slave in Roman comedy. Yeah, well, these are status in all positions of, of these yeah. are questions of status. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's real yeah. edge there, isn't there? Because actually, the edge comes if you're in real trouble. So a slave laughing at the master, um, you know, even even a, a private soldier laughing yeah. at the officer. There's real jeopardy there in a way yes, that there wouldn't it, be today with an well, edge. Well, all, all what it is is all what it is 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 or not. Or what it is is it's a priced-in way of, of 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 accommodating your systems of authority, and how they work. And when you look at the, the, the I mean, if you look at the the Shakespearean idea of the jester that we have, that there's a, someone who can speak truth to the king because because they're granted license somehow, 
And that, uh, it's interesting because in, in Roman tradition, because but Roman rep- Republican tradition, they're much more interested in freaks and things rather than, rather than a king who has a jester, a king who has a fool. And th- what's, what's really interesting is the way the jester and the fool thing develops is it's, it, it's the, the only patron that the fool has is the king. So he's, immu- he's removed, divorced from other forms of patronage. So he can speak the truth. So, you know, the, the, if, if you're Henry VIII's fool, the Duke of Norfolk can't get at you by bribing you. You speak truth to the king. And what is truth in this instance? Well, there's two types of fool um, that, that, that we see in England, and it's kind of universal in, in societies with kings. Two types of fool. And it's a lot to do with Christian theology. And you're going to so, you know, don't encourage him out. Tommy, don't Tommy, don't emerges, Tommy emerges from his torpor. <laughs> oh, um, great. Tom was asleep. Um, and, and it's ba- basically, and, well, and a lot of it, what it comes down to is, is the idea of innocence and theological innocence. And if you are someone who has what we would probably call a learning uh, disability now, if you're someone who can't get to the grips with the world as it's seen, so theology in the, in the, in the early Middle Ages and through to the Tudors, you're regarded as innocent before God because you don't know what's going on. And this turns into the idea of there's two types of fool. There's naturals, who are people who have some sort of mental uh, disability. And then there's artificials, who are people who pretend to have some sort of um, uh, uh, disability. And it's it's the, the ones who get their heads chopped off are the artificials, because in the end, they have no defence before God or their king or their patron. Because they're, they're, if they speak out of line, everyone goes, well, we, we know perfectly well you're not innocent. You're putting it on. This is your, this is your act. And they're the guys who get into trouble. Whereas the innocents tend not to. You know, you look at Will, Will Summer, who was Henry VIII's fool. Um, he's also then, he's then in the court of Edward VI. He goes through to Queen Mary's uh, 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 court as well. And I think lives until um, Elizabeth. Now, if we look at the the, the the 1066 and all that version of the politic, Tudor politics at that time, you know, if you're in with Henry VIII, you can't be in with, you, you know, if you're in with Edward, you can't be in with Mary. You can't possibly be in, you know, a, a manageable presence within the court uh, of Tudor England like that. But he runs right through because he's innocent and because he, he, he performs a function. And and you see, you see, there's also a blurred line where basically you, you have people who are companions to uh, royalty who quite clearly have some sort of um, uh, uh, mental disability because they're not troubled by the burdens of power and the court and all that sort of stuff. And you can just have, have them as your pal. And, and fools occupy this really interesting, strange, liminal space. And, and all the way through English court records, you see them on the payroll. They eat on their own. They don't eat with the jesters. They're separate from the jest or from the minstrels, rather. And minstrels start out as servants and then realise that the, they're be- if you're a servant who can play the lute, you're worth twice a servant who can't. And so you end up with this, this sort of weird hodgepodge of court followers. And at the heart of it is the fool. And there's the moment in the uh, 16th century where they sort of break out and the, when the theatre comes along. And there's a essentially a technological moment where theatre establishes itself as a piece of sort of technology, and fools start doing both. And there's Richard Tarleton, who is not only a, a court fool but also a professional fool and one of the Queen's men. And he's basically the beginning of the end of the idea of the Lear-like fool, 
and the transition into comedian, full-on comedian. And he tours the country. He, he, he has an international reputation as a touring comic and is also one of, one of the, you know, the, the, the 12 Queen's men. And it, there's this... So comedians, comedians relied on royal patronage and then it flips into they have a public uh, 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 constituency and people to play to. And all the while, there is this idea that they're telling the, they're telling the truth and they're allowed to tell the truth because they don't understand the real world um, and theology. They're not going to go to hell for what they say, as it were. Well, Al, I think that's a brilliant note on which to, um, to take <laughs> to hell. Uh, the liminality, the hell. But, there's, but, there's um, a, the, but before you do, there's a great story. There's, so that it, and this goes all the way back to the, the, uh, the second emperor, Quinn, in two, two, 209 to 27 BC. He announces that he's going to lacquer the Great Wall of China, right? Um, uh, and the courtiers all basically, the story is the courtiers all look at each other and go, oh, you're going to tell him? No, I'm not going to tell him. What a terrible idea. And there's a, a fool called Twisty Pole who steps forward and says, that's a brilliant idea, boss. But the problem is, is how are we going to get it to dry? We're going to have to build a great big drying house over it. And the emperor goes, oh, yeah, obviously. Uh, what a terrible idea. And so the courtiers don't have to confront him. And that's what the fool is for. And do you think that was used, That the fool was always used as that sort of safety Dominic. valve? Phil, Phil. Dominic. Yeah. We, yes. Dominic, you, you, we've got to have a break. And we've I just, just had I just a was, great wall I of was China just joke. Riding riff, we've got a rough shot over your brain. <laughs> no, no, we, no, we've had a great wall of China joke. That is the perfect note on which to go. Oh, go on, go on then. Go on then. Have your break. Have your break. <laughs> I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking comedy, comics. Um, before the break, I, uh, I cut Dominic off. It was just off. rude. He had, it was rude. He had some question or other. <laughs> Dominic, what was your question? So my question was about fools as safety valves. <laughs> Al was, suggest, was talking about fools as well. this, this. So they're, they're in a position that nobody else is in. And, and do the courtiers knowingly use them to deliver the undeliverable well, message and so on. Well, yes, you'd have your you'd have your own. I mean, one of the interesting things about Will Summer is he's poached from some other duke. You know, uh, uh, after, after the fool that precedes Will Summer um, is a guy called Sexton that that was Thomas Wolsey's fool. And when Wolsey falls from grace, one of the one of the conditions that he's left left uh, to live out his remaining days in peace is that he hands over his fool. So he surrenders Sexton to the king, who's not happy about it. And then eventually, as Sexton gets old, someone says, there's this great fool um, in this household. You should, you should, the king should have him. So there's a circuit of it. Everyone's doing this. But, but I mean, this is a very hard, I mean, in answer to your question, it's a very, that you posited just before as a safety valve. It's a hardwired idea, this. In, in certainly, it, it definitely deep in Western European culture. Erasmus says they can, as he says of Renaissance fools, they can speak truth and even open insults and be heard with positive pleasure. Indeed, the words that will cost a wise man his life are surprisingly enjoyable when uttered by a clown. For truth has a genuine power to please if it manages not to give offence, but this is something the gods have granted only to fools. Nice. So, Al, since Tom was so rude, I'm going to ask a second question. Yeah. Um, and this is to <laughs> and this is to follow up on that a little bit. He's much more he's much more pushy than his brother. Is he? Just, he's more just, pushy yeah, than his yeah, brother. Yeah, I can't, well, that's yeah. interesting. No, I'm not. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> getting onto the strategic level here, um, I don't think so. <laughs> All right, listen now. Something that came up in my mind while you were just talking was a few years hmm. ago, Jonathan Coe wrote an essay in the London Review of Books talking about satire. Yeah. And he was talking yes. about Britain sinking, giggling into the sea, which is this sort of yeah. this image of us um, awash with satire. But basically, yeah. satire being in hit now. Jonathan Coe, the novelist Jonathan Coe, thought of satire as as not as a safety valve and not as yeah. a healthy thing, but as an unhealthy thing. That we were too busy being slightly complacent and laughing at yeah. ourselves. That sat- he thought yeah. our obsession with satire had produced Boris Johnson and Brexit and bad government, and that instead of... I mean, we should be, as a society, more angry. And we and things yeah. like, have I got news for you, he thought yeah. it as positively bad for us. What's your take well, on that's all that? Interesting. Well, I think that's interesting, because I think um, one of the big problems with, with, with the S word has been a, 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 um, a failure to define terms when people talk about it. You'll very often see... I mean, we talked about the Goon Show earlier. I would contend that that's a satire. That the Goon the Goon Show is satire, surrealist satire, but it's satire. But but Milligan, being a blue collar Irishman um, uh, at the time, no one saw it for what it was. And then, of course, you get the satire boom in the sixties, which is called that with a capital S. And because they're all people who should have ended up in the Foreign Office or in academia, it's seen as some sort of extraordinary break a, a, an incredible moment that that f- that we all live in the shadow of forever since and i don't think I, I think there's i think the problem with that narrative is that is that jokes about the news and jokes about politicians aren't necessarily satire you know tom sharp i thought i think wrote satire um but no one would no one would include him in a in a sort of satirical lineage now they would talk about 
have I got news for you as satire? And I don't think it is. I think it's a topical news program, a topical news comedy program. I don't think it's satirical because it does it does it prick at our underlying assumptions? Does it say is it saying you get the politicians you deserve or is it the pro part of the process of delivering us the politicians we deserve? Which I think is what Jonathan means. Um, uh, uh, I think I think he's you know, I think what he means is there's too much levity uh, rather than too much satire is it's how I how, how I how I'd read that. Because they're, you know, I mean, one of the one of the one of the problems in broadcasting, of course, because I, I mean, I've just written on the last the last series of Spitting Image, and uh, you know, the, the interesting about interesting thing about Spitting Image is we all have very rosy uh, tinted spectacle view of it when it first started, and you watch the first series, and it's all over the shop because it's a brand new program in an in a in a literally a new medium of trying to do this through puppetry and impressions and all that, and they 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 just about get away with it and they do it on shock you know because it's so extraordinary to see and and maybe i mean after all satire it's juvenile isn't it tom and the, the thing about the thing about juvenile is it's all been censored because it's, it's filth isn't well, it ju juvenile is yeah i mean in incredibly filthy I mean, what uh, do we mean by i mean this is and this brings me back to my what do we mean by satire you know because uh, uh, in juvenile well, juvenile case, it's, it's lots of really filthy filthy jokes isn't it and um yeah, not, not even jokes, and, and very, very bitter, very, very yeah. bitter commentary. Uh, yeah. I mean, Juvenile would definitely get cancelled now because yeah, you know, he, he he detests immigrants. He's always going on about how awful immigrants are. Yeah, um, and he goes he he hates women. He's misogynist. I mean, in almost every he basically hates everyone and everything. Yeah, and and, and I think is you know would would is kind of tough. It's tough to read. Um, yeah, certainly for our, our sensibilities now. Yeah. I mean, I think I know what jo I think I know what Jonathan's driving at, but I think you've got to ask ask yourself whether whether the things whether things are satire or not. I mean, I think Jonathan's books are satire in a way that in a way that have I got news for you probably isn't. Is it um, also the anyway. fact that the 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 giggling sinking giggling into the sea isn't that also um, Peter Cook and yeah. Yeah. and the um, you were talking about how. Um, uh, the Goon Show is a satire on on the the Second World War, yeah. and so famously is Beyond the Fringe with the you know yeah. we need a, an act a futile gesture at this point a futile yeah, gesture yeah. and all that, and and that presumably Dominic you'd know but better than anyone I mean that was genuinely shocking when someone did uh, when, when they did that was it I'm always I'm always unsure about this I I think some people are were shocked just like some people were were shocked by that was the week that was but it's a sort of a performance of being shocked, I think, often. Well, I, rather I, I, than I see. I, I, I agree. I agree with that. I, I, I think, I think that that because after all, it isn't. After all, very often humor, humor, um, and its and its locus is is really really important. Um, Jimmy Carr a while ago got into. I mean, it's quite a while back. This, um, he got into trouble for for um, telling a joke. Um, that he had heard at Headley Court, and Headley Court is the was the rehab place for injured um, British soldiers, um, uh, and there were lots of guys from Afghanistan there. And a bloke, a bloke there, said to him, "Oh, you know, whatever else happens, we're going to get a great Paralympic team for 2012 out of this, aren't we?" Ha ha ha! Right, and that was a injured soldiers joke told in an injured injured soldiers setting, and Jimmy Jimmy lobbed it in as a sort of as a as a as a shocking bar, but he got into trouble for it. But that's 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 because he 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 moved the locus of the joke, you know he 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 tried to 
you know, take a seeding, seedling and plant it in the wrong garden, if you see what I mean. And I think, I think that we need a futile gesture from you, Perkins, is probably, if, you're, if you were an airman during the war, they were probably all saying that to each other, that that's the black humour that informs d- extremely difficult situations. You know, squatty humour is extremely dark. It's the fact that they were doing it in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a, an unexpected environment. And after all, they're nice chaps who really ought to have been in the Foreign Office and been Oxford Dons. The, the, um, it's as much to do with the shock of the people deciding to behave like this deciding to joke about this rather than the jokes themselves and you know so much so much framing and context uh uh colors people's reactions as much as the material very often the material goes by the by i mean ricky ricky gervais says you know people often hear the words in a joke and they don't think for a moment what the joke's about they 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 just hear the things in it and don't think what what's this actually about and i think you know, there's a famous, famous account of a guy when the when when Beyond the Fringe transferred to New York, who stood up at the end of one sketch and said, "You're a bunch of absolute rotters," <laughs> and then sat back and then sat back down again and enjoyed the rest of the show. So you know, uh, uh, outrageous performance is a it's it's as performative as laughing sometimes. You know, being in on a joke or being out on a joke is they're as important as each other. Well, what's your take on? Well, uh, we've got we've got jokes. Hold on, hold on, Tom. I want to ask my question, Tom. Don't do this again. No, okay, no, no, no. We, 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 I've got firm instructions that we've got to do some of the questions from the listeners. So, <laughs> so Dominic, you're just you're just so domineering. I know. He's like this all the time. I just bully. Kind of I bully. Tag dog with his questions. The thing is, I, I mean, can't stop talking, and Tom can never get a word in edgeways. I've actually got a message from the producer it's just saying, impossible. I've actually got a message from the producer, Tom, saying, ask your question. So I'm going to ask my question. My question is this. <sighs> God's sake, and now I'm being undermined by the producer. Yeah, this is, I've been waiting see, for this moment. You see what I have to put up with, Al? Does, does this happen on the other uh, podcast? No. Um, <laughs> they gave up. They gave oh, up the trying to control said, us sorry. It's a bit, it's too late right, now. Al. Go on, Dominic. Give us your fascinating question. So it's a good question. It's a question about comedy that was once funny and is now dated. Should it be, as it were, cancelled? I.e. should it be preceded by a warning or should it just simply not be broadcast? And since you're a big Spike Milligan fan, Spike mm. Milligan is a very good example of this because, of course, yeah, he yeah. did routines or he played characters in the 1970s, blacking up, for yeah, example, completely. that now, yeah, yeah. if the BBC broadcast it, there would be howls of outrage. So how do how should broadcasters... And people like that deal with this sort of issue. Well, I mean, what they could do is commission some new stuff so they don't need to fill their schedules with boring old things from <laughs> the old days. I mean, I think is 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 you know as as someone actually as someone actually con- concerned with making comedy that that strikes me as the solution to the problem. And after all, jokes about now. I mean, Barry Humphreys famously says, "The moment you die, you're no longer funny." You know that you're you you the the the. the you live, the comedy lives right in the present moment. And of course, it's not funny if it's from 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Of course not. Because aside from the, aside from those racist aspects, all the frames of reference will be um, uh, shot anyway. You know, uh, uh, and I think it's remarkable when things are funny from the olden days. But lots it's of things are funny. I mean, I okay. watched 40 I mean, Towers of, with my son the other day and well, he found that well, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty funny. But there's been a bit of that sliced out because people... Yeah, you're um, right. Uh, you're right. D- the major. D- d- yeah. Again, have done the thing where they, they miss the subject of the joke and they hear the, the the words. And sometimes that's enough for people that they, no, I'm sorry, can't be around that. We can't joke about, about that in that way anymore. OK, we have a question from the brilliantly named Keir Hardley. <laughs> you like that? That's very good. That's the funniest good. thing on this yeah. program so far. Entirely, entirely, um, entirely functional. Love the show. Low, love the show. This is fun. Yeah. 
<laughs> love the show and also love we have ways of making you talk oh. despite my very limited understanding of military history. So that's for mm. you, Al. Well, um, yes, and he says, are, are some things taboo because of our prevailing attitudes now? So that's what we've been talking about. But what I wonder is, is there a kind of churn that certain things are always held to be sacred or unsayable or whatever and that that then kind of automatically generates comedy because the moment you're not it's kind of like getting the giggles at you know yeah. a funeral or something yeah, yeah not being allowed to laugh about something kind of almost automatically makes you want to laugh about it well yes, that's ab- a kind of part of the cycle of what goes on ab- absolutely you know um and after all after all saying the unsayable is an awfully good way of claiming you're saying the unsayable is an awfully good way of selling tickets or creating, <laughs> yes. making, making a name for yourself. And let's not let's not forget, you know, that, that the comedy exists in a like any other art form exists in a raw world of commerce and direct. And you know, we were talking about royal patronage earlier. You know, now now the king doesn't pay for comedians. Everyone pays for their own personal gesture, jesters. We are, we, you know, we live like kings now. We each have the the jesters we prefer, the the fools we prefer the opinions of, uh, who, who who tell us the truths we want to hear. So. Yeah, and that, but there is relentless. There's there's endless churn. I mean, there was a, there, you know, uh, in in my career, there was a t- when I first started out, you had to be political, and if you weren't, there was something yeah. really quite wrong with you. And then and then sort of Vic and Bob, who for for my money were very much channeling a kind of M- M- Milligan-esque goonish streak, um, and satirical as well. But of course, because they're not posh, no one would ever call it that. Um, uh, uh, they they said no actually you can you can you can muck about if you want and it changed and the and the fashion changed and then there was a solid a solid pretty solid decade in the in the early part of this uh uh century where if you if you didn't do jokes about rape you were some sort of you were some sort of coward you know in terms of edge and all that sort of thing these these things just they just change the moment something the moment something's to taboo comics because after all a lot of them are driven by mischief if nothing else are drawn to these taboo subjects uh, uh, magnetically, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes you just think, well, an audience won't stomach this, and after all, it's a it's a pas de deux with an audience, the whole thing. And I'll 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 we're all here to have a good time, aren't we? Rather than be confronted about the truth all the time, which is after all one of the one of the means to the ends. And there's a very often a confusion between means and ends in comedy. Anyway, the end is to make people laugh, and you get there any way you can. There's no right way, wrong or- way. Or perhaps the end of comedy is to uh, instill in people a general sense of a historical period. This, at any rate, is the argument of Robert Mantell, who asks, <laughs> how much do you think comedy shapes popular views of history? For example, how much of our view of the First oh. World War is Blackadder or of Roman Judea is Python? Um, well, and he says it, it feels like comic takes often have a broader reach and more staying power than serious dramas. Well, that's a very good. I mean, that's that, interesting, isn't it? That's an excellent question. And um, and I think what's really interesting about that, I think, is that it's Blackadder 4. That's the one that that yeah. um, I don't think anyone looks at Blackadder, the second series of Blackadder with Queen Elizabeth in it and thinks, <laughs> oh, that's what Elizabethan England was like. <laughs> I don't think there's any any feeling of verisimilitude in, in, in that. And I don't think the Georgian... I don't know, like though. That's, three, I don't, that's the last thing image people have of the Prince mo- Regents, isn't it? Well, yeah, for, for my money, I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, as good as any other history I've read or seen of that period. It's as certainly it's as entertaining quite as... to the Prince Regent, isn't it? <laughs> it is mind. actually, yeah. Um, but then, but then, but Black... Because Black out of, Black out of Four occupies this... I mean, it's very interesting that, that, that you know, the, the First World War was kind of in living memory when they made it, but it was also firmly in living myth by then. Um, uh, like any proper big historical event in this country, you know, 
all sorts of established things that, that, that were true about it. You know, Gary Sheffield, who's who's the, the guy at Wolverhampton who's, who wrote Forgotten Victory, he's made all sorts of sort of, uh, you know, and he's written Haig's biography and also, and, and he's, you know, loathe to call him a revisionist of First World War history. But he finds, he, he, says, he says, you know, Blackadder, the problem is when you're trying to teach First World War history is getting past Blackadder. You know, that, that Stephen Fry saying we'll move, you know, the general melts it, we'll move forward an inch tomorrow and then we'll move back an inch today or whatever it is. And that, that that's what people yeah. really do think happened. And it can seem like a straw man that, oh, well, they saw Blackadder, so that's what people think of the First World War. But, you know, you, you, you and I both know history history does not belong to the people who write history books. Um, it, 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 they have they have this. 10% of the ownership of what of what history is history so often exists in in so much discourse that that it's the story you tell about yourselves as a country as much as as much as anything else or the kind of person you are reflects the kind of history you like and your view of world history is what kind of person you are and your values and all that sort of stuff and i think and blackadder is such a powerful program for shaping people's ideas of the first world war um and, and it wouldn't have been as powerful without the end. I was it? just about to say no, that, Thomas. No, no, no. It's and, the and, and, last you know, five minutes that, yeah, because and, it's a comedy program, daring to do something that yeah, yeah. most sitcoms never did, which is kill off all the characters. And I worked with the director um, who 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 made uh, that series, and he said that was one of those decisions where he said this is what we should do, and they'll and it and it went right to the top of the BBC with them going, we can't do that. It's a comedy program. Don't be ridiculous. And they did it anyway, and and then of course everyone at the everyone in the brass at the BBC high fived themselves for their brilliant creative decision. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but yes, I mean, yeah, comedy is comedy is an excellent. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I'd much rather watch Life of Brian than Gladiator to to, to get a sniff of what Roman uh, the the Roman Empire might have been like. Well, it's it's interesting that that um, the uh, the Life of Brian, which I think is actually very like Hello Hello. It's it's yeah. it's a parody of of a drama yeah, yeah. rather than of say you know I mean it's a, it's a parody yes, of sort of sort of yeah, yeah, yeah and all that kind of stuff, but it, it um we did we did an episode last week on empires yeah. and um we got asked again and again kind of variations of what have the Romans ever done for us mm. and on the whole debate about you know our empires good things or bad things that yeah. is the line that always gets brought up and also whenever there's any kind of yeah. political factionalism it's always Judean people's front. Yeah, and yeah. those two lines have the kind of sticking power of, you know, any great drama. They, yeah. they sum up incredible historical complexities in a kind of convenient shorthand that can then, yes, they're, then they're, be debated. They're like they're like a meme on Twitter, you know, that they, they, they sum the thing up. Bosh, they, you know, and, and uh, uh, c- comedians live for a thing that um, that lands that lands a uh, uh, lands like that. Um you know, if you can, if you can just get one thing through like that, you, you've. I mean, the. I, I mean, I still think what I love about Life of Brian is that, you know, Python's output up to them had, had been up to then had been them sort of, you know, breaking breaking genres and uh, and uh, re- writing sketches without punchlines and and generally just showing what brilliant um, comic minds they were. Thank you very much. And then they, th- what they do is they then feed a subject, an actual subject, into their uh Mincer and Outcomes Life of Brian, which is the most coherent thing with incle- incredibly you know, ideas hidden hidden in plain sight and all that sort of stuff that I think's really 
just a fantastic yeah and and, 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 the Holy and his Grail discussion well. of religion and Holy Grail as well yeah yeah Holy Grail you know, which is incredible in kind of the structuring of, you know because we've done yeah. an episode on Arthur as well and basically yeah. the whole theme of that was how it you know it's made, it's made up from all kinds of different bits yeah. and the way in which Holy Grail just completely destructs deconstructs yeah. the whole thing in exactly that kind of it's brilliant yeah really, yeah yeah, yeah. It, yeah. You know, and it shows the best I mean, film it about demonstrates that comedy can can uh, you know, if you get it, if you get it right, of course, you know, can can shed as much light as as any drama ever could. You know, a serious drama about King Arthur, poor whatever. But um, a comedy film that sort of finds it. You know, the Holy Hand Grenade is an incredibly funny idea. The Holy Hand, Hand Grenade of Antioch is an incredibly funny idea. Al, let me ask you this: about is there religion a, is there an extent to which, though, I mean, you obviously think a lot about the recent history of comedy and the history of comedy generally. Yeah. But when we tell the recent history of comedy, is there a danger that we sometimes overemphasize things that comedians find funny or things that, as it were, <laughs> cultural elites find funny rather than things you that... You bet. So let me give you an example. <laughs> if you were to compare the viewing figures of um, The Young Ones, which obviously was very influential, yeah, uh, and Heidi High, I mean, yeah. the chalk and cheese, Heidi High was colossally more popular. And maybe arguably tells you more about what early eighties Britain found funny. Now that may be distasteful to a lot of people because they think, well, Hardy Eyes is rubbish and mainstream, and Young Ones is much edgier but and more interesting. The, the guy, well, I, the guy, the guy, Gladys Pugh's the the one she was in love with. Yeah, Simon the, Cadell, the who runs the. Yeah, he, Simon Cadell. He he was yeah he was, he was a RAF pilot, wasn't he? So he was he's, he's from the funny. war. I think he's he was a. So there is no, a no, no, he, the no. there. Simon Cadell wasn't. No, he was a he was a contemporary of uh, Charles Brandreth. He was a friend of of his. No, but the character he played. Oh, the character. Yeah, yeah the yeah. character is well, a no, failed. I think, I think he's Cambridge a, Don well, or something, isn't he? He leaves academia yeah. to run a holiday camp. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's. I it. mean, yes. what, okay. what I'd yeah. say to you, Dominic, is I like them both. Of course, but, I mean, um, I'm not saying you can't <laughs> like them both. <laughs> but 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 the, but yes, well, maybe. But the maybe. story that we but tell tends to emphasize edginess and. Pushing a boundaries, novelty. Yes. a novelty. Yes, the shock of the new rather than the shock of the old, you know, which is that David Edgerton argument about technology, you know, that, 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 that scooters designed in the 1930s are all over the world still, but no one's interested in them. They're, they're, they're nowhere near, as, they're nowhere near as, as fascinating as anything. Well, I think, I think well, you know, um, the, 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 I mean, I think if you, if you watch, the, watch the young ones now, it, and I haven't seen it in ages. And I and I remember that show being like bashed over the head with a sort of Technicolor uh, laugh ca- hammer. It was the most extraordinary thing to watch when I was fifteen, and is l- entirely responsible for me being in- interested in comedy as much as as much as any other thing. I think it might look as dated now as as Ow, Heidi Ow, Hyde. It doesn't. It doesn't. I watched Does it. it I watched it last week. Oddly, I watched the first series. Tom, you have nothing better to were... do than watch old series of the young ones. It was so good. I, I, well, I suddenly discovered that I'd inadvertently been paying for BritBox. <laughs> I, I obviously pressed the wrong button at some point. So I thought, well, I might as well get something out of it. So I'll just, and I suddenly, I was thinking exactly that. Well, were the young ones as funny as I remembered it? Actually, they were funnier and they were more scabrous and they were more shocking and they seemed... So there was more going on than you might have noticed as a yes. kid. Yes. Yeah. Yes, a lot more. I th- I thought it really held up. Although I think that I loved I loved I Heidi I, High as well. So. I think I expect if I watched Heidi High, there'd be more going on than I realised as a kid too. That there'd there was be a lot going the on. Re- wasn't relationships there? and tensions <laughs> and all that sort yes. of stuff that, that you wouldn't wouldn't spot. You know. Uh, well, I no, I think you're. I think Dominic. I think I think that's an, a, a really good a, a, a really good question. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing that's changed in broadcasting, of course, is that there we're talking about a time where there were four channels, max. And and so you 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 either you either watch 
tidy eye, or you watched one of my well, TV. Yeah, <laughs> but here's an interesting thing. Uh, we are Tom and I had a podcast about the nineties, and we were talking mm. about the fragmentation of culture. So the nineties being the last yeah. point where you had a collective culture, popular culture. Yeah. And have we lost a collective comedic culture? Well, that's a that's a really interesting thing. Yeah, we def we definitely we definitely have, and I think. Um, and I think that that's entirely down to you know the the the, the change in broadcasting um, uh, that that's happened in the last in the last thirty years. I mean, and also that uh, it, Dennis Norden said that um, when he started writing comedy after the war, it was dead easy to get going and to make an audience laugh because everyone had been through the same thing. That 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 everyone had been through the Second World War, so to some aspect, they all had they all had an opinion on it. And they all had some shared experience, but they also had a big, the big shared experience, you know. Uh, uh, and so you could, with assurance, know that you, if you wrote a joke about rationing, uh, that it would land with everyone one way or another, that they'd all have some reaction to it. And I think, interestingly, maybe we're about to enter a period of um, uh, 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 that, that's a bit similar to that, because we have all been through the same thing. I mean, obviously, obviously... What a lot of comics will think, right, whatever I do, uh, you know, if there's an Edinburgh Fringe this year, there'll be a whole lot of people going, I'm absolutely not going to talk about bloody lockdown. I'm not going to mention it. I'm, I'm going to write about something else, something, anything else, because audiences were a sick of lockdown. They won't want to talk about it. But it may be that, that there needs to be a great, you know, uh, safety valve letting out of letting off of steam that needs to happen comedically. I, 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 I don't know. And I think but I think, yes, we definitely are. Uh, much more it's much more commonly diverse although we i mean it, you know the the, the 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 one of the standard narratives that's doing the round is you can't talk you can't joke about anything anymore the, the stuff you can joke about now that you couldn't joke about <laughs> uh, uh you know 20 years ago 40 years ago 50 60 years ago the, the the explosion in subject matter and actually and the loosening of stuff there's only one or two things you can't joke about anymore, boys and girls. You know, it's it is, it is actually what it comes down to. And there's the, 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 the sheer range of subject matter approaches um, uh, and uh, uh, angles and methods and styles. It's like it's, it, it's an infinite explosion. But isn't that, isn't that sort of, sort of damaging to an extent that a society maybe needs to laugh at the same jokes, laugh at the same things? I mean, obviously, you're, we're never going to get back to that world of the Morecambe and Wise Christmas special where 30 million people have watched yeah, the but same. I think that, but I think that's like looking at the 50s as a new golden age of the nuclear family. Um, as That's the anomaly. Uh, uh, you know, there, 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 there's only been a short... There was only a short period. There's only 10 years, really, where radio, radio comedy was enormous before TV came along, the 50s, when everyone listened to the same radio programme and then everyone watched the same TV programme and now, you know, everyone's on YouTube. I mean, it... it I mean, so much of this is, is is technological anyway. Back when there was music hall, not everyone was laughing at the same stuff because there was no means of transmission to create that idea of a, of a, of national jokes that we all understand. And actually, Al, there were much more regional jokes. People wouldn't understand the jokes that in well, London, you know, Liverpool, Charlie, and Man Manchester, well, or, or each or even each other. You know, Charlie Chaplin when he's called as a witness in the Lake District in uh, before he goes to America, they they they. They think he's French. They can't understand what he's saying. <laughs> Al, Al, um, your, your mention of Dennis Norden. Yes. Can I just give a shout out to my friend Jamie Muir, whose dad, Frank Muir, wrote Gosh. Dennis Norden. Gosh. And together they wrote what must surely be the greatest line from any comedy about history 
um, in, carry in, on Clio. Infamy, um, infamy, infamy, infamy. They've all got it. Infamy. Yeah. Um, so that's that's for you, Jamie, if you are listening to this. Um, I think we need to uh, pull the curtain down here. We've uh, we have, I guess, entertained you all enough. Um, Al, thanks so much. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, we will be back next week. I can't remember what we're talking about. What are we, oh, we're talking about Americanization, aren't we, Dawn? We are. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, we yeah, are. We're talking about how the world became American. And, um, and is it becoming so, un-American? Uh, and is it becoming un-American? So we will see you then. Al, thanks so much. A and total see you pleasure. Next week. Thanks, thanks, Al. Thanks, Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.